The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome back to the Nation. Right across from the one, I mean, there's Laura. How's it going, sweetie? Good. All right, so today we have the part three of Danny and Larry Rains, or as Larry changed his name to, I think it was, Monk Steppenwolf. Yes. I'm fucking still stuck yes. on that shit. Best name ever, ever. <laughs> so, let's see, where where we left off last time was the the beginning of the second trial for Danny Rains and Brent Cost Coster, yeah. The six foot six, fifteen year old accomplice. <laughs> I'm already terrified of this guy, I gotta admit it, man. A little little scared of him. So Reigns' second trial was for the murder of Pamela Ferno, and it began in July of nineteen seventy three. Once again, the prosecutor's star witness was none other than Brent Coster. When Brent was on the stand, he provided the court with details about what they had done with Pamela while they were with her. He gave details about how he and Danny had physically and sexually assaulted her and about how she had died. Again, Brent's testimony lined up with the physical evidence the prosecution submitted throughout the course of the trial. Even though there was less physical evidence in this case because her body hadn't been discovered for so long... Then the prosecutor called two former cellmates of Danny's who'd been in the county jail with him since his arrest. The first man was 17-year-old Richard Fee. He told the court that he was asked to lie and say that Brent had told him to lie about the extent of Danny's involvement in Pamela's murder. I really do think the uh, Danny wanting Brent to steal a car and move to Florida <laughs> was, I, I think that Brent was right. I think he was going to be the next. Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah. I, I wouldn't put anything past him. So, according to Richard, he was supposed to tell the court that Danny had been with the girl, but that they were only together to have consensual sex. And when the two were finished having sex, Danny left her with Brent to go to the store and purchase some wine and beer for all of them. (laughs) That Brent was the one who had actually killed her while he was away on his alcohol run. And the second man was 28-year-old Lee Keaton. He testified that Danny had approached him before the trial with a special request. According to Lee... Danny wanted him to hire somebody who was willing and would follow through with killing Brent before he could get on the stand and testify against him. So, yeah, he would have been next. <laughs> yeah, because he didn't give a shit, man. Yeah. He doesn't care who his victims are. He just no. wants to victimize people. Yeah. The jury returned with their verdict on July 21st, and Danny was once again found guilty of the charge against him. This one was for first-degree murder. Again, the judge ordered him to serve a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Now he just had to face the charges against him for the double homicide of Linda Clark and Claudia Bidstrup. A preliminary hearing regarding the double homicide took place in March of 1973. During that hearing, Brent was called to testify about some events that happened prior to the night slash early morning in question. 
and he told the court that Danny had come up with a plan to ensnare a female customer while he was working the late shift at the gas station on Sprinkle Road. I laugh at Sprinkle Road every single time. I have to get it ensnare, man. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to go fishing today. I'm going to ensnare a few ladies. Yes. (laughs) No, dude, that's not how that works. That's not how any of that shit works. (laughs) Brent claimed that before... They even thought about acting on Danny's plan. They made sure that everything that could hinder their success was dealt with and adjusted accordingly. For instance, they spent several nights experimenting with the lights in and around the service station to determine exactly how the lights had to be to give them the best advantage. But they couldn't figure... They couldn't... Close the fucking door! They couldn't shut the door. Yeah. (laughs) I have never been more confused in my goddamn life. Let's, let's experiment with the lights, but we can't figure out how to close the fucking door. Okay, yeah, yeah, that, that checks. Fuck out. it, go around the back. We'll just take them around the back. Well, you know, some girls like that. <laughs> In this case. <laughs> Wait a minute, you can give me more personal information? I'm all ears now. In this case, what? No, are, are we the answer l- is no, Scott. In uh, this case, no. Are we talking lube, spitting determination? How does no. that work? Unlike the other two cases, there was quite a bit of incriminating physical evidence against them. The blanket Brent and Danny used to wrap Linda and Claudia in had been positively identified as belonging to Danny. The rope that was used to strangle Linda and Claudia was an exact match to some rope Danny had given to his stepfather. Because rope makes a perfect Christmas gift. Yeah. You, you mean you never know what you're going to need to do with that. That is true. There was this one time at band camp. And, no, <laughs> never mind. Never mind. That's, a, that's a totally different podcast. <laughs> the prosecutor also called another witness in to offer testimony during the preliminary proceedings. The witness was a patrol officer that said he could place Danny in the area in question doing something next to his van. And yet no one saw him kill a woman right next to his van in a parking lot in the middle of the day. Um, After the preliminary hearing concluded, the judge ruled that there was enough physical evidence and credibility in the witness testimonies to move forward with the trial. Apparently, Danny and his lawyer agreed with the judge and then some. It was obvious that Danny wasn't keen on losing yet another trial, This one appeared to be the state's strongest case against him just by the amount of physical evidence that they were ready to present. In August of 1973, Danny accepted a plea bargain. If he pled no contest to the lesser charges of the second-degree murder, he would receive two more life sentences. By that point, what did he really have to lose? I mean, he... He wouldn't be getting the death sentence. He would just have consecutive life sentences, which I guess is not so bad. But yeah, but eventually, I mean, what if you die, come back, go to prison, die, go back again, go to prison? again? Yeah, you know, maybe you like to think after that third time, yeah, you get to walk free. They, they, yeah, you know, they go, let me see your punch card. <laughs> yes. Hey, you've been here ten times. Get out, get out of here. It's yeah, good. After Danny entered his plea of no contest and was sentenced on the charges, a newspaper reporter kept asking him questions, hoping to get some sort of response. Finally, Danny turned to him and said, There's really nothing to say. Brent had also accepted a plea bargain for the charges against him in this case, 
where he also agreed to plead no contest on second-degree murder charges. However, since his attorney had fled... Had fled? No. His attorney had not fled. Had filed the appeal against the judge's... Attorney was like, I'm out. Like, oh, I'm, I'm done with you two yeah. you, you both are fucking you're, retarded you're, shit. Yeah. I'm gone. I'm out. Um, filed the appeal against the judge's ruling on his juvenile waiver. They had to put his case on a temporary hold until the court ruled on Brent's juvenile waiver and both sides could move forward on his pleadings. He had to remain in county jail. When Brent's attorney... Hills filed the appeal to overturn the judge's ruling on his client's juvenile waiver, they received a response from the higher court. The Michigan Supreme Court agreed to listen to both the prosecution and defense arguments about Brent's juvenile waiver. However, they didn't let anybody know when they were meeting for this to happen. For the meeting... For the meeting for this to happen was going to take place. That's a strange sentence. All anyone could do was wait. 1973 came and went, and still there was no word as to when the Supreme Court would have time to address the appeal. But everyone was hoping it would happen soon. When the 1974... When 1974 followed the same suit, everyone's frustration level was rising. So he's just been hanging out in prison, just waiting. Just playing some checkers, maybe playing a bit of pocket pool. Yeah. Maybe being a turd burglar. We don't know. <laughs> Then in 1975, people started asking more questions about what was happening with Brent's case and what they were doing to bring an end to the whole ordeal. James Hills tried to request another delay in his client's plea hearing for second-degree murder charge. However, this time in Kalamazoo Circuit Court, Kalamazoo Circuit Court Judge Patrick McCauley wasn't being very accommodating. He flat-out denied the request for a delay and told both sides they had to be ready to move forward on the case by June or July because that's when the trial was going to be scheduled to start. By June 1975, there was still no word from the Michigan Supreme Court about what was happening with Brent's appeal. Nonetheless, offered the court, he offered the court his guilty plea. His sentencing hearing was scheduled for July. On July 21st, 1975, Brent stood before Judge McCauley to receive his sentence. Before the judge handed down his decision, he had a few words to say to the teenager standing in front of him. The judge looked Brent straight in his eyes and said he deserved to die in prison and that people like him were why some people wanted capital punishment brought back to Michigan. When he finished speaking directly to Brent, the judge addressed the entire courtroom when sentenced the teenager and then sentenced the teenager to a life in prison without the possibility of parole. Harsh. I mean, he he did kill people, but right, right. But he, he's a teenager. Yeah, so I'm kind of fifty fifty on that. Yeah, he's a he's a teenager. He fucked up, but what he did wasn't just like. It wasn't like an accidental killing or anything like that. I mean, he went out and like I mean, he mutilated. Did, he did. He was he was groomed. Oh, yeah, it's all these facets here of this case. But uh, and he almost had a free ride to Florida, and I can see how that could be <laughs> enticing, wanting to go to like you know Jacksonville, right? Florida or something. Yes. The judge <laughs> then Judge McCauley swung his gavel as if he were putting an exclamation point at the end of his sentence. 
The court was officially dismissed, and Brent had finally been held accountable for his actions. Right before Brent got on the prison bus to be transported to the Charles Egler Reception and Guidance Center in Jackson, Michigan. They're going to have a party at the reception center. That's what it sounded like to me. Like, the, hey, we got some streamers and some soda pop, a cake of beer. <laughs> We're good to go. He made a request to a reporter from the Kalamazoo Gazette. He said, all I ask is that you don't make me look like a hardened criminal when you write the story. Well, they don't have to try. I mean, <laughs> if you just tell the story itself, it pretty well speaks for itself. Brent did admit to people that he was hoping the judge would just sentence him to serve 15 to 25 years in prison. However, he stated that even with the life sentence he received after 10 years, oh, he was eligible to be considered for parole. So he he did have a possibility of parole. Okay. Um, when I sit back and think about it, I would have been more shocked to find out that Brent wasn't a willing participant. After all, when he and Danny met, he was already a runaway because of a troubled home life. Which I don't really fault him for considering the circumstances. I don't really fault him for considering the circumstances. Not to mention he was only 15 years old and Danny was nearly 30. I think the phrase I'm thinking of is, he was ripe for the picking. Yep. It's a weird look. You okay? Yes. You didn't pee, did you? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> that looked like it was kind of a question. Sorry. To sure you're okay. The scroll that my scrolling was weird for a minute. <laughs> no, I I call it that. It just depends on what uh, porn channel I'm watching. My scrolling can be a little weird. <laughs> Gets a little freaky deaky. <laughs> and Danny just happened to be the one to come along and pluck him before someone else did. I that some elderly lady will do that to me. Come and pluck me. I would almost bet that he had, that had Brent not committed the crimes with Danny, we would have still been reading about him committing similar ones with someone else. By the time he was 15 years old, Brent had already been in trouble with the law several times. He had stolen cars and committed well over a dozen burglaries. To me... That said, he was lost and screaming for someone to find him without using any words, and Danny was the one to answer. In other words, Danny was so desperate. Mm, I want to say that's Brent. I did not write this one. In other words, Brent was so desperate to feel as if he belonged somewhere and was valued by someone. So the first time he thought it was happening, he didn't even think he should have questioned the other person's motivation. Which is sad. However, when Brent was asked by someone why he had even participated in raping and murdering someone, not just once, but twice, this is how he responded to them. Everybody needs a hobby. <laughs> oh, no, he didn't? Okay, no. sorry, my bad. There's a reason for everything, but I can't pin one on that. In my honest opinion, I think Brent said more in that little statement than what he could have said had he delivered a keynote speech. But I also think that you have to come from a troubled home and have a troubled background to be able to understand the language he was speaking there. It's not something that can be translated by reading books and surfing the internet, that's for sure. Brent was arrested on September 5th, 1972, and he was sentenced by the judge on July 21st, 1975. So for roughly two years, 10 months, and 15 days... 
the issue of his juvenile waiver was still up in the air. I've talked about how I'm a visual thinker. Tammy's talked about this. So when I came across that tidbit of information, I had one very distinct image in my head. I was going to try and describe it for you, but I don't think I could do it any justice. There are some people who believe that despite the fact that Brent had already started on what promised to be a lengthy criminal record, that there uh, they were for non-personal crimes. Therefore, the chance of him committing assault, rape, or murder was not in his future. They believed that he only committed those acts because he met Danny Rains and was sucked into the older man's orbit of destruction. That needs to be a band name. Orbit of Destruction. That's going to that, be my next thrash metal band. Yes. I'm going to call it called Orbit of Destruction. <laughs> you think he? You think he would have committed personal crimes? I could see that. John was saying that he thought they think he was ramping up towards that, and that's where he acquiesced. Um, accurate. Right. Oh, no, I totally, totally agree. I agree with that. So, yet, there are a few others that see it differently. They said that when it came to the crimes Brent and Danny committed together, Brent was an equal and willing participant. He wasn't the submissive that most people have made him out to be. That if he hadn't have begun committing violent person-to-person crimes when he had, it was only a matter of time before he did. However, by the time he did start committing them, he would have been older and more mature, and the acts would have been more horrific than they were. So, I, I could see that. Oh, yeah. I, I actually agree with that. Yeah, well, and that's what I'm thinking. We're talking behavioral conditioning. I mean, that yeah, childhood... Yeah. He gets involved with Danny, so there's yeah. more programming going on there. I think, though, if he wouldn't have met up with Danny Rains, he would have met with somebody else that is of a similar caliber. Yeah. He was in the market for a specific director, not a mentor. Yeah, I agree with that. John is saying, because you can't hear him uh, from where he's sitting uh, in the back, but that he was looking for somebody who was a, a director, and I, yeah. I agree with that. He was yes. searching for somebody that... that he could share his his i that that shared his ideology. Yes, you know for for crime and things like that. And I I agree. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, because he was programmed to do that. Yep. You know, it's sad. But it was all. It, it's like John was saying. It's like his mind was already set at that point. Oh yeah, yeah he he knew what he was all about. Yeah. By then. Yeah, probably. That could be. I would say that about that. Yeah, I would agree. All right, what else you got? So when Danny was sent to prison, he was barely 30 years old. If anyone's ever spent any amount of time in jail or prison, they know that once you're on the inside, it's as if time slows down. Therefore, he had nothing but time on his hands. So he found a way to occupy that time. That's ought to be good. Yeah, besides that. No, <laughs> that's me. Never mind. That's, that, that's my idea. <laughs> Danny spent a good portion of the day in the law library doing his own legal research when he arrived at the Market Branch Prison in the in the Yupper. No, no. It's called the Yupper. The Yupper. Oh, guess how I found that shit oh, out. Oh, boy. Because my waxer, she's from Michigan, too. That's right. And then uh, Tammy said, hey, when you go talk to Michelle, ask her where she's from in Michigan. I said, okay. She went to here, 
wait, wait, what's up here? Oh, that's the youper. I'm gonna tell you guys from Michigan this one time, one time only. There's no fucking word is a youper. I don't care what you guys say. That's that's retarded. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm from the youper. You only know what that means if you live there, I guess. So. Yeah, but he's from the youper. Yeah. He filed his own appeals with the court, and he started with the Hawk case. For this appeal, he petitioned to have his conviction overturned. Danny argued that in this case, there was only one victim. So it should go without saying that whoever was convicted in the crime should only have to face one charge. Therefore, since he, in fact, received two convictions... It constituted a violation of the Double Jeopardy Clause in the Fifth Amendment. But it was two different charges, As wasn't it? I, I, I this is remember. so long. This this is like 50 pages of research. Yeah, because, if so. because if it's two different charges, like I think it is, and I might be wrong, I'd have to go back and listen, then that doesn't violate the right. Double Jeopardy rule. Yes. You can't say it's a double homicide with only one victim, but... If you find the body and go, okay, there's a homicide, but also yeah. she was raped. So that's, that's two that's two separate, separate charges. charges. Yeah. So. Well, so. Um, We're going to get you on the mic, man. He filed it with the court and sat back to wait for their response. His argument must have been convincing. In 1979, he received a notice from the appeals court. Judge Judge Donald Anderson canceled the second-degree murder conviction Danny received in relation to the murder of Patricia Hawk. With that conviction being canceled, one of his life sentences also vanished. Ooh. He's not as dumb uh, as I thought he was. Well, all that time on your hands... Well, being just a gas station attendant, and I'm not saying the, I've seen some gas station yeah. attendants are actually smart, but with this guy's career choice, like, I'm going to move to Florida and be a gas station attendant, yeah. and I'm going to go back to the Uper and be a gas <laughs> station attendant. Oh, hey, Danny, where are you from? Right here. been pointing to his yeah. hand. I, I, I give him an IQ of a potato, but no, he's got one overturned, so he's so a good go. Danny Rains must have thought his appeals were like Lay's potato chips. <laughs> I must have ESP. <laughs> because he wasn't satisfied with just one. He d- he dug in and attacked the next one. After the Court of Appeals decision in 1979, Danny received another notice in 1981. This one came from the Supreme Court. They were letting him know that they agreed to set aside the second conviction regarding the Patricia Hawk case. Okay. Fair enough. All right. The panel ruled that the presiding judge on the case should have instructed the jury to consider one small matter that had a large implication. The jury should have been instructed that they were able to consider a second-degree murder as an alternative verdict for the murder while perpetrating rape while perpetrating rape charge against the defendant. So because the conviction was set aside, there was another one so there was another one of Danny's sentences for life without the possibility of parole. Now, Danny... I'm getting a little bit impressed with you, Danny boy. Yeah. That's not bad. And you didn't change your name to fucking Monk. <laughs> uh, fucking Steppenwolf. Yeah. So, you know, I'm already impressed with that. You're obviously smarter than your brother. Smarter, Larry. for sure. 
Now, Danny just had the two life with possibility sentences and one more life without the possibility terms to serve. That's still a long time. It is, but you know what? He's getting rid of them one by one. There was a catch, though. The conviction wasn't overturned. It was merely set aside. Therefore, the prosecution had the option to retry Danny on the same count and roll the die with a new jury. Or could just give him the sentence he would have received had the jury returned with the verdict of second-degree murder, which would have been life with the possibility of parole. Granted, Danny still had three other life sentences. However, only one of those was without the possibility of parole. The only sentence that was practically guaranteed that he would spend the rest of his natural life in prison was his conviction in the Pamela Firno case. The prosecutor for the Patricia Hawk case was facing a dilemma. They knew that taking Danny back to court and retrying him on a case that old would be difficult at best, especially now that the primary evidence they had against him in the first trial wouldn't hold the same weight it did, considering it would now be considered the testimony of a convicted murderer who was also in prison serving his own life sentence. However, when the prosecutor really wanted... Was the prosecutor really wanting to risk a full-on acquittal, which may have impacted the other sentences Danny had been given, as this case was the first one that was tried? In the end, he opted to give Danny the sentence for second-degree murder. He just crossed his fingers and hoped that Danny wasn't able to find a way to set aside, overturn, or vacate his conviction on the Pamela Firno case. I would be a little nervous if I was I him, too. Would He's already be knocked too. two of them out of the yeah. park. There's one issue that has been consistent with Danny since the day of the Kalamazoo County Sheriff's deputies slapped the handcuffs on him and told him he was under arrest for murder and had the right to remain silent. I know what it is. He didn't properly check the oil in those cars. He was a (laughs) service station attendant. And, you know, a couple of people went, hey, I'm like two quarts low. What the fuck, Danny? He's like, I don't know. It looked fine to me. I was checking fluids, but not those ones. Yeah, I I was dipping my dipstick into fluids, (laughs) just not the ones that you thought, buddy. The last one was a little dry, just saying. She was a few quarts low. That issue is, Danny took every possible opportunity he had to insist that he was innocent and had never been involved in or physically committed a murder on any level. Is there a difference between his words now and what they were back in 1972? Is he using different verbiage? He had found a credible... Had he found a credible corroborating witness... The answer to those questions is not technically. The difference is some researchers have continued to pour over the details in the investigation numerous times, and they're seeing something that wasn't so evident back in 1972. The researchers are now quick to criticize and call out the original investigators. They can't understand why those seasoned detectives were so willing to put so much stock into the story of a troubled teenager who was directly related to the case himself. The monk breaks his silence. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew. I knew that the monk had to come back. I knew. Talk to me, monkey baby. Talk it. He's the monkey. During the mid nineteen seventies, Larry Rains, as he was formerly known, agreed to talk. With, agreed to talk to with an English professor, Conrad Hilberry, who contacted him. At first, he was hesitant, but then decided that some. 
some good purpose might be served, so he invited Dr. Hilberry to the prison to discuss his family history on the condition that it be a serious study about the inner workings of his mind. He himself was interested in understanding why he could so calmly kill someone. These are his words. Could so calmly kill someone, yet I'm very reluctant to hurt someone because it doesn't hurt to be killed. Nah, it's painless. Um, (laughs) Yet what he actually wanted was to get his story out to the public in the way that he devised. When Hilbury arrived, he described Larry thus. His hair was long, well down over his ears. He had a mustache and a pointed, pointed Van Dyke beard that gave him a faintly Mephistophelian look. Reigns immediately explained the name change to Monk Steppenwolf as a way to get out from under the bad reputation he had experienced as a kid, which had made him hate his name. <laughs> uh, What's wrong with Larry? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I work with a dude named Larry, man. He's pretty badass. I like him. <laughs> I hid the name Larry, so I picked a more a name that more people can accept. You know, Monk. Monk Steppenwolf. That's a much better name than Larry Reigns. Maybe it was his dad's name. <laughs> I don't know. Well, maybe. That's... Ah, yeah, anyway, continue. The new name intrigued people and garnered some respect, which was reinforced by the dark glasses he always wore. Hilberry's impression on several occasions was that Larry wanted to control all aspects of the interview. He questioned everything and gave careful instructions. He also seemed happier when their conversations were recorded, Hilbury was also struck by the eerie casualness with which he accommodated himself to murder. Hilbury spoke to both brothers and to the legal and prison personnel involved in Larry's case. He also spoke to Kathy Raines, once married to Danny and now and now married to Larry. <laughs> They're keeping it in the family. Oh God. They're from Arkansas. Yeah. He... They have to be from Arkansas. <laughs> he... That right there. You know, actually, I'm proud of them because uh, the family that lays together stays, stays together. together. That's yeah, right. that's Arkansas family values right there. And from apparently up in the Uper. <laughs> he had the distinct impression of all of them, uh, distinct impressions of them all, which he recorded in the book. Larry, the youngest boy in the family, was a loner who developed a sense of distance from life. When the family dog was run over, for example, he felt nothing. His mother worked full-time on the evening shift in a paper factory, and though Larry and the others rarely saw her, he recalled that she was disorganized and ill-equipped to deal with a family or an alcoholic husband. How do you guys deal with me? Because (laughs) I just started considering the drinking I've been doing over the last two days between coming home and drinking a ton of Jim Beam and Diet Pepsi. And then we went wine tasting yesterday, and that turned out to be more like wine drinking. Um, (laughs) Once again, with wine drinking instead of tasting. So, oh my God, I might be an alcoholic. Holy (laughs) shit, I'm going to rehab. I'm done. (laughs) The father apparently tormented the boys and became easily enraged when they failed to obey as fast as he wanted them to. He also beat their mother and destroyed their furniture, as well as picked fights with other men. He seemed to enjoy humiliating the boys as well as 
scaring them and forcing them into difficult situations, including drinking alcohol. See, that's part of that behavioral conditioning, though, right yeah. there. That's totally be- because, you know, okay, and, and I always use myself as the, as the greatest form of a guinea pig because I was raised in an extremely abusive household where my dad was very aggressive and beat the shit out of me almost every fucking day. Mm. And with that... I became a very aggressive person right? until I got therapy you right? Know, and I got help and I, you know, and I, not just therapy and help, but I got into a program that worked best for me because, you know, I got a psychology degree trying to uh, fix myself and yeah. that didn't work. And I went through counseling and that didn't work. And finally I got into a program that, that actually did work that taught me life skills. So we're talking back during the sixties, I'm thinking, or fifties, fifties and sixties. Yeah. So, these resources weren't available to these guys. No. I, I, I'm not exonerating them for what they did. Right. At all, because what they did was horrible. But I want everybody to remember that uh, a lot of the resources that we have today and the advancements that we have in psychology today weren't prevalent or even known. They didn't even exist. Right. In, you know, in the 50s, 60s, no. 70s. They were just starting to bud a little bit in the 80s through the 90s. And now in 2022... We know a bajillion times more than we did back in the seventies and eighties and and, and, you know, and prior. When if you were if you were seeing a psychiatrist, then it was like yeah, there's a lot of stigma, stigma behind attached. It. Yeah, yeah, it's like oh, you're a fucking lunatic. Yeah, you're no, no real man goes and sees a shrink. Yep. What do you got a vagina? Yeah. Like, no, I'm fucking crazy. That's why I see a goddamn therapist. And it's your fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it, right there. You know. But, you know, that it kind of explains their, their aggression because I took out my aggression on other people. Yeah. Because and it's really bizarre. And, and unless you're in that position, you don't understand. You won't understand. But um, on on the inside, you know what you're doing is wrong. It's wrong. Yeah. Very wrong. But in the moment, it fills a void. Um. While you okay, it, it's the same with almost anything else. Like, I, and I've read this. Uh, oh, I did a whole paper about uh, uh, kids who have been molested as children. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll talk women, and we can talk boys too. But they know that either what's being done to them is wrong as an adult, so they, they're seeking. They you know tend to seek out abusive people. They know that it's wrong, and they don't like it. But it fills a void. But we do it anyway. Yeah, because it, it fills something that's missing mm-hmm. because we haven't learned the life skills. It, it could be life skills. It could be the self-worth. It could be value. There's a bunch of other a things. A lot of it is is self-worth. Oh, okay, yeah. 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 I, I, I believe that most of the time that's, that's it right there. Until we've learned to unlock that within ourselves when it comes to especially sexual abuse, like, hey, you know what? I... While I know this is wrong and it feels wrong, but it fills this void, I need to make this correction in my life. And when we learn to turn off what people say that affect us the most, you know, Mm -hmm. like my family always told me that I wouldn't make any money in music. I'm a piece of shit. I'm going to wind up in a gutter. Um, We were talking about that yesterday when we were coming back from the winery. And the reason why I strive so hard and work so hard, especially building the company with you guys, is that every day. I prove them wrong. You prove them wrong. Yeah. Every day. Yep. But still in the back of my head, I'm a piece of shit. Yeah. In the back of my head every day, I go, I'm a failure. I'm failing at everything. I'm a total piece of shit. Even though my brain screams out, no, you're, no, you're, you're not. You're, you're doing yeah. fine. You're, yeah. You're, 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 you're accomplished. You know, you, you, you write, you're, you're, you're part of that 1% that makes money in this industry. Yeah. Um, 
you know, but still there's that little thing of, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I guess you do okay, but you're still garbage. But it's the same way with these guys. They, they, I'm pretty sure that it, afterwards they're not celebrating, but in the moment. Yes. It fills a need. It yes. Fills, it fills a void. That's my whole spiel on it. <laughs> so, although the father, he finally abandoned them when Larry was nine and had shown them no legitimate way in which to earn approval or self-esteem, he'd left lasting damage, like we're just talking about. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, Larry didn't buy the psychiatric argument that his murders were the result of displaced anger at his father. He told Hilbury that the gas stations and men who picked him up had just been the easiest to rob. Well, that's all it was. (laughs) Okay, he's still, honestly, I would, from my point of view, I think that he would still be, he's just in denial. He's in denial, yes. You know, because nobody, it's really hard to look at your family and what you do and go, you know what? Yeah, I did wrong, but you guys started this shit. Yeah. You guys are the fucking reason why this happens. Yeah. It's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. It was a hard pill for me to swallow. Yeah. Um. Since, you know, counseling and everything like that, I've been able to swallow that pill pretty well. Um, <clears throat> and even with counseling, like I said, it, it still affects people that shit happens to as a child to into their adulthood. I'm fucking 48 years old, and it still happens to me. Um, we were talking yesterday about something that my mom said when I made honor roll for the first time. Quote, Which is a big deal. <laughs> you're too stupid to make fucking honor roll. You're lying to me until I brought her home the poster from my high school that said that I made honor roll. Yeah, because I was too stupid. That's horrible. Yeah, welcome to my family. It's great. It's just a barrel of fucking monkeys. But, you know, it, so you got Danny, you got Larry here. You have this abusive dad. And I'm pretty sure as boys, you kind of want to look up to your dad. To your dad, right. You know, that's that's, that's natural. Yeah. That's a natural thing, you know. So dad walks out. You're still young. You're what? Nine, no, ten, yeah. eleven years old for Larry-ish because I think they're two years. I apart think they were a year, maybe a year apart. So oh. like nine and ten, or maybe nine and eleven. Yeah. So, being from a young age, as you're growing up, things can become skewed in your mind on what actually happened. happened. Yep. And pretty soon, maybe it's not the alcoholic dad's fault that he was beating you all the time. What did mom do? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I bet you that mom did fill in the blank. It could be anything. She was. She must have been nagging him. Or she was like yelling at him, and it becomes mom's fault. Well, and that's what he was saying is like basically my my mom wasn't good enough, and she couldn't handle dad. Yeah, there you go. So yeah, it's her fault. It's not dad's actions. Yeah, it's mom's fault that this happened, and that's it's really easy to do when shit like that happens when you're a young young child. Mm-hmm. As you grow older, um, and like I said, it, it's 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 honestly it's sad that it had to get to where Danny and Larry wound up. Even that 15-year-old kid, the fucking... Brent. Brent, fucking 80 feet tall at 15 years old. <laughs> yeah. fucking the climbing. giant. Yeah, goddamn King Kong motherfucker. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot of behavioral conditioning, a lot of programming going on there. And at the time, like I said, no resources. No resources to... Because, like, nowadays... I'm, I'm sounding older and older. <laughs> Back in my day, yeah. we didn't have therapists. We had the psych ward, and we got electric shock therapy in our butts. <laughs> I can tell you, shocks 
make you so relaxed <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> My anus was never the same. I got butt raped three times. Didn't feel it. It was just like the bottom. I got chills. Oh, well, hey. They... They're multiplying. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but, you know, you got to figure out the time. Like, okay, so, so, so now if you're a teenager, you're, let's say you're 10, 11 years old, and when you're having these problems, you can either go to your parents, but let's say your parents are kind of absentee. They're kind of fuck-offs. Mm-hmm. You can go to people at your school going, hey, man, I fucking... I, I got a problem. I got a problem. The, the, this is what's going on in my life. This is how I'm feeling about it because every kid's taught to express their, their feelings. Their feelings, yes. And they're going to work, your counselor's going to sit down with you from at the school or teacher. Go, hey, man, tell me about it. What's happening? Let's, let's try to work the, through this together. Let's get your parents in here. Let's figure this out. So now let's go back to the 50s, man. It's the 1950s. You go into your teacher and you say, hey, teach, I'm having these problems. And they're going to be like, fuck right off. Sit down and sit, shut up. Yeah, sit the fuck down, shut the fuck up, do your goddamn homework, and go home. And go home. Yep. <laughs> So yeah, it's a it's a different ball ball of wax, you know. And I'll reiterate, it was that way up until the fucking early two thousands. It was up to it was yes. just like that because nobody understood child psychology. No, nobody understood adult psychology thoroughly. It's uh, we, we've just made so many advancements. I don't think they took like, oh, you're just a kid. I'm yeah, like, come on. <laughs> Yeah, kids don't know anything. Yeah. And all that good shit. So, continue. I'm, I'm done with my spill. I'm, I, I, I was up, I've been up with my soapbox twice. Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm going to change myself to Jesus Steppenwolf. <laughs> the blah, blah. That's right. Jesus Steppenwolf, blah, blah. That's yes. my new name. <laughs> so, these are him, his impressions on Danny. Um, there are some people who believe Danny's assertion of his innocence. I don't know how. Reportedly, a police officer doing graduate work in criminology researched the investigation and apparently had doubts about the case made against Danny, but he declined the opportunity to speak about it. Well, then why? Why do the research if you're not willing to come out and say, hey, I mean, it's not going to affect your career. No. You know, you're just giving your fucking opinion on it. (laughs) So, given the physical evidence, along with the note that Danny ripped up, it seems odd that someone in law enforcement would discount that. So, that was the note that, I think it was that Kathy was supposed to lie. Oh, the one that found the toilet. In the toilet, yeah. Toilet notes. Yes. (laughs) Hilbury thought that Danny was a fast talker, using his facility with language as a way to persuade others and himself. My own impression, Hilbury writes, is that he's urgently and persistently rethinking the past, going over the events in his mind and rearranging them, changing them so that the story comes out the way it ought to rather than the way it was. Yeah, that's very poss- That's a very good possibility. He did not believe that Danny was the psychopath that Larry was because he didn't exhibit the same shallow affect but his understanding of psych- psychopathy derives from an outdated source and the works done during the, the 80s and 90s indicates that psychopathy can take a variety of forms. Danny's behavior, in terms of glibness, deception, slick, convoluted reasoning, self-pity, and irresponsibility indicates that he may certainly earn that diagnosis as well. 
Despite Larry's desire to kill Danny, if he ever got out of prison, from Hilberry's description, Danny seems just as dangerous and perhaps more cunning. So now he wants to kill his his own brother. They, I can relate. Yeah. I kind of, I don't want to kill my own brother, Phil. I really don't. I just like watching him fail. <laughs> I got to be honest. <laughs> that is better than any death in the world. Yeah. Because, and I'm going to share my family's story real quick. <laughs> With Phil, it's always the same thing. It's a, it really is. It's a, oh, somebody broke into my shop or my truck and stole all my tools. And then he files an insurance claim and gets new tools. Mm. Somebody wrecked my truck. And then, a man, you know, somebody stole my truck. And then all of a sudden gets a new truck from, yeah. from mommy and daddy. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's that. It's, it's perpetual failure. And unfortunately, in my family, it, it, I, I, I feel... That it gets, um, it's it's condoned. It's praised. It seems yeah, like it I is. Mean, I'm, yeah, I'm the piece of shit in my family. Yeah, for succeeding. Yep, and you know I, I'm okay with that because I've said this a million times. Family is more than blood. I've got my blood family. Yes, but then honestly, and this isn't kissing anybody's ass. I've got y'all, man. I fucking love y'all like, yes. to death, man. I always tell you, you're my number two favorite yes. girl. You know, fucking love you guys to death. I even like John. He's pretty all right. <laughs> I love him. <laughs> I love John too, actually. I was telling I was telling Don yesterday. I just I never imagined that uh, that John and I would be as close as we are. Yeah. You know, uh, much less you know getting to meet you and everything like that. It's I've got a different family set. Yeah. Than what I started out with, and it's pff, fucking. It's the family fabulous. that you've made. It's what I like to call. <laughs> Framley. Yeah, there you go. It's like a dysfunctional Brady Bunch. That's what it is. We're, <laughs> yes. but, but we're all dysfunctional together in the and same it works. way. And yes. it works. Yeah. Yes. It's just, it's the right, you know, if you're looking at a motor, all the cogs are a different shape and they all look fucked up. But then you turn the machine and go, holy shit. They all work together. Oh, how the fuck that actually works? But it works well. But it works. Work. Yes. It works really fucking good. I don't, in, in physics, this shouldn't work at all. But, <laughs> Yeah. It should blow up, but this is fucking awesome. That's like fucking bravo. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> we're going to back away from that because it confuses. It's, it's just confusing. Yes. <laughs> we make people pee their pants. It's great. It's good. It's good times. Good times. Um, so several people who knew or spoke with Danny surmised that his competitiveness with his brother may have triggered his own murder spree. That makes sense. It does, yeah. You want to be a better killer than your brother was. Right. I'm, I'm cool with that. Well, they, they fought over everything as kids, mm -hmm. so that makes sense. Um, Larry had gotten considerable publicity in 1964, and then with his successful appeal in 1971, he was getting even more. But Danny failed. Right. He did not change his name to Monk Steppenwolf. He didn't. Get which, a cool new name. That's right. Danny, you, you lost it. I'm sorry. You fucked up. You got your... Appeals, but you didn't change your name. <laughs> you got to change your name to something even better than Monk Steppenwolf, which I've been stuck on for over a week. <laughs> <laughs> that and Arfin. It's going down in history. <laughs> Him and Arfin. I fucking, I just can't get that shit out of my goddamn head. <laughs> so it was right around the time that he was brought back to Kalamazoo Jail that Danny began his own spate of murders. He's been in trouble before but not to this magnitude, and yet if he were truly competitive in the way that serial killers often are, he'd have accepted credit for his murders and perhaps even added 
added to it as a way to one-up his brother. Yeah, no, that's very true, yeah. Since he protests his innocence even now, it seems unlikely that competition with Larry was the driving force. All right, well... A prisoner who encountered Danny and who asked to remain anonymous said that Danny was reclusive and liked to wear a cowboy hat. I know someone else who wears a cowboy hat. <laughs> I was just that's me. I kind of wear my cowboy hat everywhere. So <laughs> Your cowboy hat's awesome. Damn it, they're on to me. <laughs> he was also good at making leather crafts and had a pet parakeet for a while. Wait a minute, tell me more about your leather crafts, you <laughs> kinky little boy. He did hang out at Tops. <laughs> that he did. <laughs> He's like, uh, I got something for the Tops and, and the Bottoms. the Bottoms. <laughs> Let um, me introduce you to my friend Flogger. Oh, God. He spent a lot of effort fighting his four murder convictions, claiming that his court-appointed public defender had had no experience with murder convictions and that he'd been unable to get the court to accept a request to get discovery under the case. Brady versus uh, the case Brady versus Maryland. He went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court with his appeal, but the court rejected the case based on a lack of evidence that the trial court had actually denied him discovery. Hmm. There was a lot to discover. Yes, I mean, <laughs> let's just be. Yeah. Let's just call the spade a spade here. Right. You come. You're you're in court. You've got bodies. You've got proof of rape. You got proof of uh, the like the ropes, the two ropes that were tied around the one girl's neck. You got two bodies that were left in a fucking car. Well, we're gonna splash gas on it, and like in the movies, I'm gonna light a cigarette and just leave it on the front. But seat. not, yeah, not make sure that it even <laughs> caught fire. And I'm just gonna walk away because I'm that cool. Yeah. But you got all that shit going on. There's plenty of discovery there. What else? What else does he want to discover? You know. I mean, you can discover it wasn't Danny. It was a man on a grassy knoll. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Wearing a blindfold and a cap. You know, <laughs> what, what the fuck, man? No discovery. Kiss my ass. Yeah. Man. Fucking you no monk Steppenwolf motherfucker. <laughs> you're a killer, but you're no monk Steppenwolf. I'm just saying. Just saying. So another oddity. Uh, Danny had married a girl, Kathy, and they had had three children together. <laughs> but in 1971, before he commenced his murder spree, she divorced him. Yet she continued to see him. And thus, she noticed the scratch on his cheek just after the Hawk murder. She testified against him in court and told Hilbury that she had the vague impression on two occasions in 1972 that Danny had murdered someone. You know how to pick them, lady. <laughs> hey, I can't falter, man. I've picked my share. That's not. I can't. Uh, we've all not made good decisions there. I got, I got one name that will ring out with uh, the person behind me. Chris. <laughs> that face says it all. Uh-huh. Hello, pants. She looked like Gary Busey. Oh, God. I didn't even realize it until... Okay, so I had this uh, a transgender uh, a bass player. Her name was Terry. Yeah. And a great bass player. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're sitting around one day, and, you know, we're, we're, we're jamming, we're writing. And he goes, you know, who she, you know who Chris looks like? I go, who? And he... She. Looked at, yeah, she. <laughs> Looked at me and went, hello, pants, during the <laughs> Gary Busey commercials yes. for Amazon. Yes. I stopped. It. That's that's fucked up. She doesn't look like I'm oh, Actually. <laughs> I'm banging Gary Busey. This isn't, that's, that's not right. God, what the fuck? I'm fucking Gary Giving Busey. Giving you the silver bullet? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. 
which is one of my favorite fucking movies. Yes. But every time I saw Chris after that, all I could think to myself was, hello, pants. That's good. That's bad. That's good, but bad. That was freaking awesome. <laughs> Don't get choked up there, sweetie. You all right? Deep, yes. Deep breath. So those impression those impressions had coincided with the times of the murders. After one incident, he had forgotten to pick up the boys for his visitation, which, yeah, he needs visitation. After leaving him, she had married another man, a union that produced another child, but that had only lasted two years, and she found herself getting involved with Larry. <laughs> and why not? You know, when you start stepping out of the family, things go awry. Go, 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 go for the brother. I mean, you know, you get, plus with a name like Monk Steppenwolf. So, th- yes. They finally married in March of 1975, and she took the last name Steppen- Steppenwolf. Oh, my God. That's awesome. Kathy Steppenwolf. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Monk Steppenwolf. Yeah. Right here. That's, oh, my God. Kathy, you're a peach, baby. You're a peach. <laughs> she told Hilbury that in school... Of the two Reigns brothers, she had been drawn to Larry, who was more reclusive and quiet. But he apparently did not return her interest sufficiently. He was having... He, he had his much older girlfriend neighbor. That's right. I forgot. At the same that. time. Maybe, like, he was like 15. He was she 13 was like, and she was 23. Oh, 23. I thought I was like 89 or whatever. But, no, not that much older. <laughs> just a lucky bastard. <laughs> Why can't I get the 89-year-olds? You could. You're just not trying. Hey, like I said, just because the rapper's wrinkled doesn't mean the candy isn't sweet. <laughs> I actually, I, I, I told Tammy that because I'm you know, always telling her that I'm in a banger mom. Yes. I, I got a new one. And she goes, you just made me throw up in my mouth a little bit. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> Wait till I peel those panties off. <laughs> God. I'm not right in the head. <laughs> see what it's like hanging out with me, boys and girls. You see this? You know, you, you don't want to hang out here. Trust me. <laughs> so he didn't want to hook up with her at the time. Makes me sad. Makes me sad. But he ended up marrying her. Kathy attended Larry's trial in 1964 as much as she could, hardly believing that he was capable of five murders. When Larry went to prison, she was ready for Danny's attentions. You can't have one, go for the other. Hey, maybe maybe, maybe the Reigns brothers like Prinkles. You can't. You can't bunch, bunch of pop, you just can't, can't stop. stop. <laughs> so, he moved in with her, and soon she was pregnant, so they got married. Danny. But eventually she and Larry started to write to each other and apparently fell in love via correspondence. So she cheated on one brother with the other brother. (laughs) Emotionally, he was in prison. It was not physical. Dear Monk, I want to get your motor running and head on (laughs) on your highway. Do you like adventure and whatever comes your way? I just can't. I can't. I can't do it anymore. Jesus Christ. So, this, understandably, became a source of fights between Kathy and Danny, and was yet one more thing over which the brothers had to compete. I wonder if she was, like, completely honest, like, seriously, like, oh, my God, you want to fuck my brother? And she's like, yeah, kind of. Yeah, <laughs> I do, yeah. <laughs> want him, want I wanted him, him first anyway. That's right. He changed his last name to Steppenwolf. That's hot. <laughs> So then Hilbury. You know, a magic carpet. Right? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It's the magic carpet, right? <laughs> yeah. It's Kathy's magic carpet. Um, <laughs> Hilbury received word in 1979 from Larry Monk at that point 
that he no longer had a wife, meaning that Kathy had ended their marriage. He was awaiting a visit from a woman whom he calculated would become his next wife and was married again by 1980. I don't understand marrying someone who's in prison. Actually, me neither, on a serious note. So we're in contact with Ward Weaver Jr. in San Quentin. Yeah. Um, And just to catch people up who don't know the whole Weaver story, um, we actually featured him on an episode, uh, Family of Killers. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ward Weaver III killed two girls in Oregon City, Oregon. And he's currently serving his time in, uh, uh, in Oregon at the penitentiary there. But we've been corresponding with his dad. Okay. Because he's a former truck driver, and him and I... Of course. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But he's married to a girl from Germany who lives in Germany. And I think she flies here once a year or something like that. But they don't get... And I I had to directly ask. I said... Conjugal visits? Yeah, do you get conjugal visits? Because I'm a dude with a good sex drive. And I'm thinking, if you're married and you're in prison... How can I put this? You see a lot of dicks. Yeah. And you got a nice set of tatas, you know, can you get a little something? Nope, we don't get any conjugal visits. I've never been so sad for a For someone. Ever, ever. Ever. Like, seriously, man. I mean, I know the dude's on death row, but dudes, like, seriously, like, let him get laid every once in a while. If she's crazy enough to marry him. <laughs> they apparently love each other. He says a lot of good things about her, and... All that stuff. I would like to see if we can have correspondence with her as well. That would be cool. Yeah, she seems like a like, like a totally seriously like a cool chick. But Ward Weaver Jr. Um, it was really weird because when we first started writing him, for those of you that don't know, uh, the very first letter was very abrupt. It was very kind of a little bit aggressive. Yeah. And so I wrote him back and said, "Hey, thank you very much for the information. Appreciate it. You know, bye bye." And then he thought about it. And we started writing each other back and forth. And mm-hmm. now it's it's a very friendly. I mean, totally turned around yeah you know like a total well, i mean i could understand his defensiveness well yeah because people who are on death row t- get a lot of you know they get yeah and get fan mail and you know that good shit but uh it was very eye-opening yeah very, oh wait a minute you know about Ward weaver jr because you and uh squatch were working on his uh, genealogy yeah that's right okay okay my brain works really slow because i am half retarded <laughs> <laughs> well in my defense i'm half retarded almost every fucking day but um but yeah, the, it it was a total turnaround. Total. Yeah. I mean, we we talk like we're friends. Yeah. The whole shot, and uh, of course, Tammy's got his letters now because right. she's doing the genealogy. Yeah. And then you know, and she puts in whatever I have to say to him on top of what she's saying to him, and getting those back and forth. But uh, yeah, no conjugal visits, man. Like, okay, here's my thing, man. At least it, let the dude get a blowjob or something. Like, or a handy J. At very bare, bare minimum, a little handy J. Something. God damn, guys. That's cruel. Well, really, I mean, it's... It, it could be supervised. I mean, you don't have to watch. But, it, I mean, it could be... Like, are you, are you worried that he's going to... That's on Pornhub, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I think that's how Pornhub started. <laughs> next on inmate, on next, next on inmate loving. Yeah, it's, it's a live feed. Pay per view shit going on. Yeah, it's a cage fight. Oh. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> I just nailed spit. What do you say? 
dying over here. <laughs> so let's see. So he was married again in 1980. Uh, while the details of the breakup with Kathy are unknown, it was clear in Hilberry's book that she had maintained hope that Larry would one day be free. While he stated quite clearly that he had no desire to be out of prison. I maybe it's the structure. <laughs> Surely this produced some tension, but it's also the case that some women married to men behind bars tire of having an unavailable husband or that they meet someone who offers more and they end they end up in the prison relationship. But here's what I'm thinking, even for the wife's point of view or husband, you know, your your significant other is in prison. Everybody has needs. Yeah. And for those of you who are younger that think that your sex drive dies out when you hit like 40. That's a lie. That's a lie. I did. I, my sex drive is higher now. now. You know, yeah. Way, way, way higher now. The only thing that keeps me from like, you know, like trying to hump the dog or anything like that is, <laughs> I'm not really humping my dog, <coughs> is the extreme hours that I work. Yeah. And I come home just fucking exhausted. Yeah. If it wasn't for that, if I had a little bit of rest, <laughs> I would be humping my pickup. You have no idea. Sometimes look at them. Hmm, that crumb's looking pretty good. I spent all of my time also with people who had nowhere near the drive that I've had. Oh, yeah. And so it's really nice now to be with someone who does. <laughs> so it's also nice when you don't have to initiate it yourself all the time. All the time. All the time. Yeah. yeah. That, that makes it. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like, like, like seriously, she'll fucking look at me with that look like, hey, little boy, <laughs> I've got some candy for yes. you. Hey, you want, you want to come over here in this dark, dark corner? And I'm like, lady, you're kind of creeping me out. Don't worry. Your parents said it's okay, Scotty. Come here. Looking at you like a steak. Oh, yeah. She's like, don't worry. It's a special game, Scotty. You'll like him. I'm not sure you're supposed to be touching there, lady. <laughs> so, as for what made the brothers tick, especially in terms of violence, let's look a little deeper. How deep? <laughs> like, are we talking this deep or that deep? <laughs> you have to close the fist. Oh, goddammit. We were talking about closing in the sp- my favorite. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just can't. Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I haven't taken an algae pill today, so I keep on inhaling fucking spit. Continue. I'm going to grab a pill. So, a comparison between Nevada killer Gary Gilmore's family of four siblings, an equally abusive and tyrannical father, and similar economic circumstances, as well as a cold mother, shows that of four boys, only Gary became a killer. In fact, another brother was the victim of a homicide, and the youngest son went on to be an award-winning writer. They write porn. (laughs) Asking for a friend. (laughs) That both Reigns boys committed serial murder, selecting entirely different types of victims and showing much. It's not just you (coughs) with the allergy. I had to get you back for almost killing me a couple of times. I'm over here choking, and it's it's part of its allergies, but part of it's because you get me laughing so goddamn hard. 
I sit there and I fucking I'll inhale and all and I get spit or you need some yeah. curic. <laughs> you need. I need, you need, I, to I need be, an uh, emergency room nurse. That's yes. what I need. Going, it's okay, Mr. Alexander. Just breathe. You're going to be okay. Don't aspirate. We're going to intubate you, right? So we're going to give you a little bit of this medication yeah. first, yeah, which is going to kill you. Sounds kinky. We, we've done a couple first. of those <laughs> medical like, rub my Mondays. Head, I'm pretty. I'm good. <laughs> this one. The, the one on top. I'm not talking about the one on bottom. Just rub that head. I'm, I'm good with that. So you're pretty. Now you're going to die. I'm, okay, we're good. <clears throat> so, that both Rain's boys committed serial murder, selecting entirely different types of victims, and showing much different patterns, <clears throat> cannot be attributed solely to poor parenting or economic conditions. <coughs> but I bet you that has the majority of what to do with it. Uh, un- <clears throat> unfortunately, the psychiatrist who testified about insanity for Larry offered only weak ideas about his motives. But that's the thing. That's Most of that is behavioral <clears throat> conditioning. Yes. The vast majority of it got extreme abuse. You have a lot of behavioral conditioning. So while it, it's not... At the end of the day, we're all responsible for what we do. Yeah. For our actions. Yes. But I think if you would have taken these two dudes and you put them in a different family environment from the get-go right you, know, you have supportive parents the total opposite of what they had i think that they would have turned would out have much different people much different yeah they, they yeah. were so fucked up but it would have been normal fucking up stuff yes. you know what i mean like hey i stole some candy from the store and then i got my ass beat and i had to say sorry and i couldn't have the candy that type of shit not murdering and not raping. murdering yeah gregory moffitt uh, in a violent heart says, even though there are a few rare exceptions, violent individuals are not born that way. Instead, they become violent through the process of cultural and sociological interaction, individual physiology, and psychological development. He points out that a person's worldview, whether it's positive or negative, exhibits things said or not said, or done, or not done by parents, even well-meaning parents. A really weird thing that a lot of people don't realize is uh, most of a child's development, when you actually learn the most vast knowledge, is in the first six months of life. Because you're learning, you you learn everything that's going to program you, almost everything that's going to program you of how you're going to react to things. Uh, For example, empathy. Yes. And sympathy, and love, and compassion, and um, and bonding, that all happens between the time, the day, the second they're born, mm-hmm. and right about six months. Everything else is just reinforcing the lessons that are learned. So if I were to program you from the day that you were born, I didn't fuck anything up that time when that dropped. That was great. <laughs> um, from the day that you were born, and and I taught you compassion, now every action I have beyond that is going to reinforce that compassion yes um you know to some level even if i fuck up yeah even if you come to me and say hey you know i'm feeling really sad today but look i don't have time right now go away that's a fuck up but still traditionally you know that 99 percent of the time i'm there yes yeah and it's going to hurt you in the moment but it's not going to destroy you 
No. You know, you're going to come to me later and you're going to say, hey, I really hurt my feelings. But no, you're right. I, I was a dick. And we're good. But to the reverse of that, if every time you come to me, you know, and I've taught you, I've programmed you for compassion and empathy, um, and uh, every time you come to me, fuck off, fuck you, suck it up, mm-hmm. quit crying. And then the one time I go, okay, come here and tell me all about it. That's not going to fix that damage. No. You know, so it it, it works both ways. When it, I think <clears throat> you see that a lot in, um, especially, I I have read about it a lot with people who've adopted children, especially from Russian orphanages. Oh yeah, where Russia. they are in that first six months or year or even a couple years are just not, they're not, there's so many of them for one thing and they're not held and they're not talked to. And they're, they're just basically, it's in a room full of cribs. They breed like Russians, man. (laughs) (laughs) You like that one? Yes. But they, they, a lot of them have like that reactive attachment disorder. Yep. Things like that, because that's, not nothing was being written in them at that yeah. time, except you know. I mean, they're basically they're alone. They're fed and they're changed, but exactly that's it. So there's nothing to teach them the 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 procedure mm-hmm. of bonding mm-hmm. because that is so fucking critical. Is teaching the you know a, a baby from the time it's born the procedure of bonding. And there's actually been papers that have written that it's important to start teaching them that while still in the womb. I agree. The, the third trimester, yeah, because then they're developing brain waves and yeah. shit like that. But um, it's it is so essential to teach kids and to bond with them. Are you going to be a perfect parent? No, nobody I is. I fucking guarantee yeah. you that nobody in the world. And if if you are the perfect parent and your kid has never made a mistake, you're lying to yourself. Yeah, <laughs> and they're lying to you. Yeah, and they're lying to you too. And you're buying yeah. you're you're basically you're buying a bill of goods. Yeah, and those goods are spoiled. You yeah, know, just no. Everybody makes mistakes. Mm-hmm. The thing is to minimize your mistakes. Do the best that you can. Make sure that they don't become, you know, monk stepping wolves and Danny <laughs> Rain. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and things like that. Just do the best that you can. But people only, people do what they are taught to do. Yes, they do. Um, and that's for the good or the ill. It's sad but true. Okay, I'm off my soapbox again. It, it says additional. In addition, cultural influences affect the way people think and behave. So that's, I think, part of the whole like the 50s and 60s. Oh yeah, 100%. mentality yeah. like we were talking about. Um, a researcher who lays out these influences more precisely is Deborah Nyhoff, a neuroscientist who studied 20 years of research before she wrote *The Biology of Violence*. In her opinion, the decision to commit violence is unique to each individual. The biggest lesson we have learned from brain research, she says, is that violence is the result of a developmental process, a lifelong interaction between the brain and the environment. The whole nature versus nurture. Oh, yeah, totally. But the brain keeps track of our experiences through... Chemical codes, Nyhoff states, each time we experience an interaction, we approach it with a neurochemical profile influenced by attitudes that we've developed over the years about whether or not the world is safe and whether we can trust our instincts. The chemistry is our our feelings about 
any situation is translated into our responses, then that person reacts to us and our emotional response to their reaction also changes brain chemistry a little bit. So after every interaction, we update our neurochemical profile of the world. We may turn a normally appropriate response into an inappropriate response by overreaction. <clears throat> we are always very inappropriate. inappropriate yes. <laughs> That's kind of an always thing. Yeah. Or directing it to the wrong person. In other words, a person's ability to properly evaluate the situation may become impaired. If a person has come to believe that the world is against them and they're over and they are overreacting to every little provocation, these violent reactions get beyond their ability to control because they are in survival mode. Nyhoff indicates that some aggressive people are overreactive in part because they are physiologically hyperactive with a short attention span. Underreactive types have trouble developing empathy, have lower galvanic skin responses and a lower metabolic rate, and fail to attach emotion to their behavior. This appears to be related to both Danny and Larry, at least as Hilberry describes them. Yet not everyone with a similar interplay of psychological and physiological factors will become violent. It requires other factors as well. In The Sacred Heart, about kids and violence, psychologist Helen Smith indicates that violence comes from the accumulation of many distorted thoughts and stressors that finally send a person over the edge. People who use violence to solve a problem have already had a number of violent thoughts. They perceive their situation in such a way that violence seems the best mode of action because they believe that they must bring their situation to some dramatic conclusion. Violence builds over time, and those children exposed to it in the home on a frequent basis may feel stimulated by it as a means of affirming something in themselves. Trying to understand how this all works was a task that Dr. Hilberry had set for himself when he received the unique opportunity to interview the Raines brothers. And that is the end of the three-part Raines saga. Holy shit. <laughs> this was one of the more interesting ones. Yeah. It really was. This is, it, it was like watching a serial killer soap opera. Yeah. That's what it was. Yes. I expected a doctor to come in and go, guess what? You're he's in a coma. Dun, dun, right. Dun, dun. And he's gonna come out and go, But 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 Kathy, I thought you were married to me. Well, oh, Danny, you were in a coma. So In I another had, dimension. In another and then dimension. you came back and then yeah. So I, I, I <laughs> another had to dimension. Marry Mary, yeah. And like, you know, I couldn't bang him or anything, but I wanted to. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Fucking bizarre shit, man. You have to make the your, your oh, that's face, right. I didn't your... get the face. <gasps> <laughs> you have to make the, your soap opera face. <laughs> Watched enough soap operas to know this. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> All right. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check out the website, www.TwistedBlueLLC.com. Keep checking the website because we're coming up with some games with some fun prizes and all that good happy horseshit, including serial killer bingo, the wheel of toxins. <laughs> which I it's going to be fun. I can't. I want to play. I want to see if I can win. <laughs> <laughs> I want to. Yeah, because it's just something. It's like not for investment purposes. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> we're not. We're yeah, that's exactly it. 
Oh, my God. Check out our Patreon page. Help a brother out. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, or wherever you get your blogs. Just type in at Brutal Nation. We should pop right up. Get the full story without any of my bullshit behind it, which I kind of like my bullshit. I do, too. <laughs> and I'm trying to get somebody to put my thumb down here. But <laughs> this show's copyright 2022. Twisted Blue LLC. All rights reserved. And we will see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.